As the new year unfolds, make it a year of comfort and indulgence with Minky Couture. Wrap yourself in the lap of luxury with our exquisite blankets. Picture the cozy moments, the warmth of our premium materials, and the stylish designs that define Minky Couture. Welcome the new year with the ultimate in comfort and sophistication. January is your month to embrace luxury. Visit MinkyCouture.com or your nearest store today. Elevate your comfort, elevate your style with Minky Couture. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 25 of Citadel of Fear by Gertrude Barrows Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Citadel of Fear. Chapter 25 the white beast-hand. And so, Kennedy was saying, being mad for the girl, and having learned that my brains were worthy of respect, Marco, or rather Markazuma, to give him his full name, sold me one or two secrets that were absolutely invaluable. Just for my help in winning her. Lord, if I could have got a like hold on some priests of the other guilds, the world would be at my feet now, as it shall be yet. Believe me, friend Boots, the most powerful god in Telepolan never had a seat there, nor received any recognition. Even I was blinded for a while." O'Hara decided that his abstraction had lost the thread of a very interesting narrative. "'I don't understand,' he said. "'Neither did I, at first. Do you remember in what agony of mind I called you to come back that night when they turned you loose and kept me a prisoner?' I had seen the thing that would have made any man afraid. I had seen the transmutation, but I'll get to that later. Believe me, you'll have a very clear idea of that particular mystery before this night ends. But to get back, there was quite a while there when I was actually afraid, afraid of their trumpery stone and gold images. I. Then old Topiltsen, you remember Topiltsen? He was the first priest of the sacrifice to that lump of stone there." He nodded contemptuously toward the idolon of Nakakya-Uttal. He was the one you dropped overboard and I nearly paid the debt, with not my life, but a fate that, as I hinted before, you will be well able to understand before I am done with you." There was an ugly and reiterated threat in the man's words, but somehow Cullen found it unimpressive that vile, unnatural marsh with its obscene forms and spectral eyes was terrible enough. The squatting similitude of all evil beneath the black canopy was, like the things a man sees in the dark light of delirium. But the self-styled Lord of Fear himself was not terrible at all. He was as incongruous to his surroundings as the soiled rubber apron to the golden cougar's head or the miscellany of common trash to the golden chest that contained it. The black god of the dais, the goblins of the swamp, were loathsome but awful. Kennedy was loathsome and inspired contempt. He was shallow, cheap, the shell of a man, empty of aught but petty egotism and a malice that had not even the redeeming dignity of greatness. 
Looking him in the eyes, Cullen wondered that he had a little while before seemed to see behind those round lenses the true fiend look that characterized the marsh beasts. "'I wish,' he said steadily, "'if it's all the same to you, Mr. Kennedy, that you'll give me the straight story and be through.' "'You do, eh? If you knew what waits for you at the end of it. Well, to go on, old Topilsen received a revelation in a dream that his god wished me for a temple servant. Damned fortunate revelation for me, too. I told you that I let imagination run away with me at first. I swept and carried and toiled for them in fear and trembling. I. Till I began to use my reason, to remember that material effects have material causes, and I saw clear to the real God behind the sham ones. And yet you would not strike me as a religious man this minute, observed his captive thoughtfully. You fool, I don't mean what you mean. The God I speak of is the only one of real power the world has ever known. I mean science. Those priests have a dozen secrets they took from science and gave the credit to Tanothiu and Talalok and Quetzalcoatl and Lord knows what all. And in the end they paid the penalty of all fools who cloud science with superstition and have faith in their own empty rituals. They, who might have ruled the world, turned on each other. In the terrific collision of blind forces loosed, they and their misused knowledge and Telapalan itself simply vanished from the earth. Ha! I helped to bring that about. I, the poor, despised, insignificant temple slave. Like all proud, superstitious fools, they were ready enough to believe the tales I carried from one to another. Sven Bjornsson rather fancied himself in those days. High adviser to the Council of Guilds, he scorned me. Once he called me an abject, cowardly slave to my face, but it was the slave who undermined Sven Bjornsson's work, and the slave who caused Talapalan's fall. And those hulking guardians, neutral by oath. God, but they were bitter against each other before I had finished. A desirable citizen they got when they got you. But Kennedy, caught in the rush of his own triumphal memories, went on. Of course, luck was with me, or I'd have brought nothing out of the grand smash but myself and some pleasant memories. Markazuma, he was an under-priest of Nakakiotl, is one. Yet, in fact, what, Marco? I call him that, yes. The other's too long for convenience and too odd. We haven't been anxious to make people ask questions of any sort. Even you can understand that. But Markazuma he is, and still a priest of Nakakiotl, in his own silly opinion." Cullen had cause to doubt it, but if Kennedy had not discovered the albino's demise there seemed no good reason to enlighten him. As I was saying, Markazuma had already got in pretty deep with me. Then he was kind enough to have a revelation of his own, or say he had one, in which his black ugliness there expressed a desire to escape into a wider field of activity, and named me as his chosen agent. Hmm! And maybe the creator of hatreds wasn't off in his choice of an agent at that, Mr. Kennedy. Will you shut up, or do you prefer to be gagged? You're wise for once. Be silent and listen. While they were fighting on the lake, Marco and a few of his fellows, who believed in his silly revelation, helped move his godship and this temple paraphernalia that you see out of the hills and afterward lugged them to civilization for me, 
and then they were fools enough to go back to that cataclysmic hell we'd left raging behind us, all but Marco. He is a coward, as well as a fool, and besides, there was the girl." "'What? The girl? Why do you look—ah, you did see her that night, didn't you, and lied about it afterward? Do you mean to tell me that you—that Marco—oh, forget the girl, she's not important. I brought her along for the same reason that I brought his black ugliness yonder. Markazuma has been in love with her since she was a mere child. But the poor fellow is no beauty himself, and her father would never hear of a match between them. She has always sworn she'd kill herself if I gave her to Marco, but that doesn't seem to phase his devotion a particle. Queer, I wouldn't step out of my road for all the dark-eyed beauties that ever walked, but Marco is a cowardly, weak simpleton of a man. I've never let him have her for just that reason. Afraid she would kill herself and Marco would follow suit, and until recently I've needed the fool. He believes that Nakakiotl has deigned in a measure to carnify himself in me. Between desire for the girl and fear of the black god he fancies is in me, I have owned the man body and soul, and in no other way could I have owned him so completely. To tell you the truth, I rather suspect that the young lady has overcome her distaste for his society and persuaded him to take her away from here. I was out last night, tell you about that later, and when I came back they had both disappeared. But it's no particular matter. They are such a queer pair that no one would believe any story they could tell, and Marco, at least, has enough sense to know better than tell tales on me. Let him go. I don't need either of them, any more than I need the statue there. I'd have that carted out and broken up tomorrow, only, to tell you the truth, I've a certain affection for the silly thing. Rather a pretty little parlor ornament, isn't it?" he chuckled. Well, to return to my story, luck was with me from the start. I tell you, though superstition was Bonaparte's one weakness, I can almost sympathize with the little Corsican's belief in his star of destiny. If there had been a real star of destiny working for me, things could have been made no easier. You would think that shipping all that gold out of Mexico, particularly in the form it bears, would have been a hard enough trick to put over. The government would have grabbed the whole loot at the first suspicion of what I was taking out. It isn't worth my while to tell you the full history of that trip. But it fairly ran on greased rails from start to finish. We ended with a run across the gulf to New Orleans, in a schooner that must have been plastered with pure luck. I don't know of anything else that could have held her rotten old timbers together. Her skipper knew me in other days, helped me out for the sake of old times, and one of the gold ingots Marco had looted from the temple supply of raw material. I rather expected a knife in the back. But Diego Rosales must have become quite a reformed character in the years I spent in Talapalan. He told me he had never seen so easy a run as we made, nor one he was so glad to see the end of, complained of frightful dreams through the entire voyage, and stuck on deck without sleeping all the last forty-eight hours. I asked him why, and all I could get out of him was, Tengo miedo, tengo miedo malo. But what he was badly afraid of, unless it was the dyspepsia that gave him the dreams, is a mystery to me yet. If any one had reason to be afraid, it was I. 
that old rip of a schooner, with her leaky hold full of my gold, and the original sixteen pirates of the sixteen men on the dead man's chest song for a crew. Queerer yet, if you knew Rosales, he deliberately took the ingot I'd given him and dropped it over the side, just after we came to anchor. Those pirates looked on, wooden-faced, and it was their gold as well as his, mind you. I came back on board that night, after the stuff was landed, and I'll be darned if they hadn't dug out a relico of Santa Maria from somewhere about the ship and set it up near the bow and the whole gang of them on their knees to it. To purify the ship of its passenger, Rosales said. I might have felt personally insulted if there hadn't been three of us, and one such a queer-looking beggar as Marco. Maybe those red eyes of his got their goat. Four of you, corrected Cullen O'Hara softly. No, three. The girl and Marco and I. But I didn't bother much to find out what particular superstition was troubling Rosales. The old contrabandista had landed my stuff so that the customs authorities never got a look in, and that was enough for me. Done up in straw and gunny-sacking it was. Never even had wooden cases till I had it in a warehouse, and from there I took it to another as mineral specimens. And by George, I shipped it north as freight, plain, common-as-dirt freight, and never lost a piece. Chances? Of course I took chances. But the difference between a fool and a wise man lies in the kind of chances he takes, and I rather fancy that success is the last criterion of that. Even if Rosales had suffered a change heart and told tales of me on the other side of the gulf, there was little connection between Archer Kennedy, one time of Campeche, and Mr. Chester T. Reed, who signed bills of lading, at last, for several cases of worthless bits of stone. Kennedy paused. After a moment he kicked reflectively at one of the golden urns. "'Lord,' he said, "'there was a time when just owning so much yellow glory would have turned my head. And look how I use it now. To me it is merely a non-corroding elemental metal, necessary to a certain process, and which it amuses me to utilize in the traditional forms it was carved into in Telepolan. But if I should ever need money, you would find how sacred the temple vessels are to me. Not that I expect that need to come. By the time I've run through what raw gold we brought away, I'll have a stronger ruling power than gold in my hands." "'Supernaturalism is only dangerous,' continued Kennedy, "'if you believe in it. The priest made that mistake. I didn't. With the one little mystery that I managed to bring out of Telapalan, I shall establish such a dominion as the world never saw before. Men bow to two powers—gold and fear. In the day when I am ready they will bow to one only and that will be in my control. Gold! What's gold beside fear?" Again he kicked contemptuously at the urn. Then he stopped speaking abruptly, and a queer, dazed look came into his face. He passed a hand over his forehead. "'Strange, too,' he muttered, more to himself than Colin. "'I could do a lot with all this wealth here. Mastery of the world. What will I get out of it more than the gold will buy me?" "'A very sensible question,' approved Cullen. "'But what have the bogies yonder that you're so set on claiming as your own to do with world mastery?' "'They? Why, they are only a beginning.' The tone was almost querulous. 
he was like a man half asleep and beginning to doubt his dream. But in continuing, the dazed look passed and his old grandiloquent manner returned. Only a beginning. I had to learn the method. Marco taught me much, but the priests had never half realized what could be done. They were afraid of their own power, the fools. My fearless intelligence has wonderfully improved results. The brutes grow now with the most amazing rapidity, and multiply. And how they eat! You would hardly believe that those starved-looking beasts get away with living meat enough to keep a whole jungle full of tigers fat and happy. It's growing so fast, I suppose. But in the first month, after getting all this in order, I achieved only two successes the beauty that strayed to Carpentier in June, and Genghis Khan, who, by the way, remained strong enough for all your attempt to injure him. He dragged your weight from the gates down here with one arm. As for the other, my firstborn, as you might say, your sister killed it before it was half grown. It strayed away one night, and I fancy you can guess the answer now to your famous bungalow mystery. The poor brute crawled home up the creek and died before morning. Lord, but I was angry. Then, in a few short weeks, came all these." He gestured with that left hand of his in its bulky white glove. "'Came from where?' asked Cullen. "'I heard tell of a man once who went down into hell and bargained with the old boy himself for a billy-goat, but I never did give what you might call credence to the story. If you've been doing the like of that, though, Mr. Kennedy, I'd advise—oh, silence! Do you hear me? Silence! Your superstitious chatter is enough to drive a man mad. I tell you, these beasts are of my own making, mine. Or rather, they are my creations, from the common, silly, useless forms they first grew in. How can I make a dolt like you understand?" I don't know, unless you should tell it all in plain English. It is rather difficult, sneered the Lord of Fear for me to make clear to a man like you the technical details of a process more than sufficiently recondite for the comprehension of a—' "'I understand all those words,' said Cullen meekly. "'Of a trained thinker,' finished the other. "'Will you kindly cease interrupting me? As I was saying, to make the details clear to you is not only impossible but needless.' I should not go into the matter in any degree, were it not that I wish to dismiss from your so-called intelligence the idea that you are about to become the victim of a supernatural phenomenon. Do you know what occurs when an organic substance undergoes what is known as decay?" "'It rots,' came the rather weary reply. The answer I would have expected. But to delve a little deeper into the veridical nature of this rotting— "'The cell structure broke in his audience, deteriorates under the caducus influence of the oxygenation of the atmosphere and other similar atrocities. Mr. Kennedy, as you say, I'm a man of the simplest attainments. And not only that, but between being hit on the neck and loss of blood, and the elegant ventilation of this strike-off between a voodoo temple and a section of purgatory, tis only by sheer will-power that I do not faint from moment to moment. If you've information to impart, Put it in words of one syllable, and as few of them as possible, or I'll not take the trouble to stay in my senses to hear it." There may have been that in his face which confirmed the statement and urged haste. At any rate, the would-be lecturer conceded glumly, "'I can't explain it so that most of it won't go over your head, 
but the ABC of it is this. In an animate creature, the life of the microscopic individual cells which form its tissues, and the life of the organization of all those cells, in other words, of the creature in toto, are entirely separate and distinct. An animal may die, in the common sense of the word, and if its body is kept in a place sterile of germs and of moderately cool temperature, the cell-life will not perish for a considerable period. In fact, the body of that dead animal is so very much alive that a portion of it may be grafted upon the body of another living animal, and that portion will take up its normal functions as if there had been no interim of death. In other words, flesh, tissue, blood, sinew, and the organic matter of bone never die until decay sets in. But, paradoxically in sound, not fact, decay is always preceded by death, not the death of the animal, but the death of the cell. And decay means dissolution, the breaking down of the cell structure, the resolving of firm flesh into a semi-liquid and putrescent mass. That is the natural course. There is, however, a certain substance of obscure mineral derivatives which was known to Nakak Yaotl's priests, and whose secret I brought away with me, as well as a considerable supply of the substance itself. The application of a thin film of this substance in solution to living tissue dissolves the cell organization, which it immediately permeates, without destroying either the cell structure, the life of the cell, or the life of the organization. One might call this portion of the process pseudoputrescence, false decay. As it goes on, the entire being of an organization melts, as it were, into a homogeneous, jelly-like mass, and yet remains in every sense alive." Kennedy paused impressively. Cullen saw that for once comment was really desired. "'Twould be more exciting,' he ventured. "'Did you give a name to your organism? So be it was a cabbage now, or a turnip, one's sympathies would scarce go out to the poor thing, as they might to—' "'Stop it!' shouted Kennedy. "'Is there no power on earth which will divert your idiotic flippancy into serious attention?' I clearly indicated that I was speaking of animal life, not vegetable. Can't you understand that it is the blood, the sinews, the bones, the living, conscious, feeling flesh that is resolved into this—' "'That's enough,' flashed Cullen. "'You make me sick, you do. The man that would do the thing like that to so much as a rat is not fit to be living in the world at all, and much less listened to.' "'So that is how you feel about it, eh?' That's how I feel about it." Kennedy seemed rather pleased than angered. This was the first symptom of any emotion other than indifferent contempt which he had managed to elicit from his captive. "'Then you don't wish to hear,' he continued, "'how in this vital jelly there rises a new impulse, a reorganization of the cells, a reconstruction to a new form, molded, strangely enough, by neither chance nor heredity, but solely by the will of the of the empty head who is at work? No, I care to hear no more at all about it." "'Empty head!' ejaculated Kennedy indignantly. "'I said it. Any man who is fool enough to play with the devil's own process you've been describing, to try to explain it by a rigmarole of science, not to perceive the black power behind his own power, such a man is no more nor less than an empty head, and I say it again. What do I care for your methods? Look at your results. 
Look your results in the eye, Mr. Kennedy, and then tell it to me that the worser beast on the dais there had no finger in their making. Fool! 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 The Lord of Fear fairly raged up and down the floor. I'll show you. You shall see with your own eyes. Before you pass beyond comprehension you shall see the living creature. Rabbit, cat, bird, it makes no difference what creature, or how silly and innocuous. You shall see it lie in the elemental vessel of gold. You shall see me anointed with my own hand. See me lave it, then, in the second solution, and— His voice calmed, lowered, and grew almost reverent. You shall see that the creature dissolved to a quivering, living mass, almost transparent, palpitant with strange, fugacious hues, with one steady crimson fleck at the center that is the nucleus. And from that nucleus you shall watch how the new structure spreads and forms. To you it may be dreadful because it is so strange. To the trained mind it is a beautiful and a very curious sight. It is like watching a wonderful egg, of which the shell is transparent, and seeing the live creature within grow visibly. It is more than that. It is like being God, a real God, and beholding the formless protoplasm take structural shape under mere power of will. Oh, there is a science of will as well as of matter. One has to get the trick of it, and it doesn't come too easily, I assure you. There is a point in the process where one's bare hands must be laid very cautiously on the work. If you miss that point of time, it all melts away to an evil-smelling mess that has to be burned. The very odor is poisonous. If you act too soon, there is a greater danger. I had one accident that taught me, but never mind that now. Then, at that moment of crisis, the whole force of one's being must be concentrated in a thought, and one can almost feel it flow through one's fingertips. Then watch. First come the little scarlet veins, an orderly tangle of filaments, shooting out from that red speck at the jelly's heart. They grow and the arteries form, the bones begin to be fragile, translucent as clouded glass. Presently a dim throbbing comes, all the center is clouded now, and under the shapeless, glistening surface a shape is beginning to show, the shape I had thought of. Two dim, flame-colored discs peer out at me, and I know that they are eyes, the feral yet obedient eyes of my newly created one. The outer jelly is almost absorbed now, it solidifies, toughens into membrane, into skin. But why should I tell you more? You shall see. And after that, doubt if you can that I am a creator in my own unguided right but never think me a conceited egotist, no. I don't pretend to know all that goes on in my laboratory, what true scientific man does. There are even yet phases, difficult riddles, for instance the amazingly rapid aftergrowth. I have the wet marsh there for them because in that environment they grow faster, larger, stronger. I take the little new beast, all naked and shivering and snarling with feeble resentment, I take it and feed it well. It eats from the first moment, and lay it in that cool mire among the white rushes and the fungi whose spawn I brought from Talapalan. It creeps away and is gone, and when, an hour or so later, 
I call my beasts to the edge and bid them seize their living food, the little new beast comes with them, and already it is larger. But that is by no means all. These beasts have a faculty that they share with no other creatures save the simplest organisms. They do not multiply slowly, but split in twos as easily as— Master Kennedy, can you not realize that tis a nightmare you're talking, not science? I tell you, they do. They must. I admitted that I hadn't traced that phase of the experiment yet, but in no other way can their extraordinarily rapid multiplication be accounted for. And the queerest part is, they don't split into twos of the same kind. The gatekeeper now, the shining leechworm. I never made him. He was draped round the neck of that statue when I came down one morning. I knew at once that he had crawled up there from the swamp, looking for food. But I'll admit that the thing gave even me rather a start. It was so different from anything I had even thought of making. But obedience is the test. When I found he obeyed even better and more intelligently than the rest, I knew him for the child of my children. I named him Gatekeeper and hid him in the lodge. The last owner hanged himself there, and there are some remarkably silly stories current about it. I generally leave the gates unlocked at night now. Anyone who comes prying through them will find a gatekeeper to tell a real story about, if he survives. Isn't that an amusing idea? The first night you came here I rather expected him to get you as you went out, but I suppose, having seen you admitted, he regarded you as under protection." "'Very like,' agreed Cullen dryly. It was characteristic of both men that neither had made reference to any reason why Kennedy, whatever horrors he kept for the rest of the world, should have refrained from loosing them on Cullen. The debt of life one man owed the other had been easily cancelled on Kennedy's side for the sake of a fancied grievance. For Cullen, what was done was done with. If he had nearly sacrificed his own life, not once, but twice, to preserve a creature so contemptible, why, so much the worse for him. "'I suppose,' he continued, "'that it was this gatekeeper pet of yours that wandered into my veranda a few weeks ago, and ran again, poor cowardly worm, for the silly noise of some pots and pans.' The Lord of Fear started and frowned. "'No,' he said shortly, "'I never sent him to the bungalow.' then it must have strayed like the others. Wasn't it an odd coincidence now that Genghis Khan, who never got inside the house, was the only one of the lot that didn't manage to do a bit of damage to a certain little statue I owned? Quetzalcoatl it was, the same that yourself introduced me to when we were together at Bjornsson's hacienda. Watching closely, Cullen thought that a reminiscence of that odd, dazed appearance shadowed the other's face. Then the man shook it off and scowled. I know nothing of it. If it happened, it was a coincidence, and I can see nothing particularly strange about it. Till last night I never sent or guided any of my beasts outside these grounds. I tell you, I am not yet ready. If you hadn't come prying, I would probably have never bothered with you at all. Do you think that I am a man to go out of my way for the sake of anything so trivial as you, unless driven to it? As for the image, I read in one reporter's account that you had brought it from Mexico. Did you really find time and courage to go back at last? I waited for you long enough, hoping against hope that you'd cross the desert alive somehow and return with help. 
There, said Cullen gravely, I owe you an apology, Mr. Kennedy. If I'd guessed you were still living, I'd have gone earlier, but it's done with now. Along with a number of other things, including Talapalan and yourself, he grinned. You'll see the point of that shortly. To return to my gatekeeper, I don't believe he ever went near the bungalow. I told you he was more intelligent and obedient than the rest. But for that matter, save for one or two unimportant lapses, they are all obedient. As they grow larger, I may find a use for the fenced enclosures I supposed would be necessary. But now, well, you can see for yourself. Look into their eyes. Can you see a hunger there? And yet not one of them will cross the deadline after that first beast's rebuff. And the gatekeeper, think of it, loose in the lodge and attending his duty more closely than any human. There's a science of will, I tell you, as well as of matter. Those I made, my will went into, and their procreations recognize me as master. Think of a horde of such, when I am ready, ravaging the countryside by night, slaying whom I will to slay, and always multiplying, increasing, growing in numbers faster than men can kill them off. And they won't be easily killed. They die hard at best, and besides, man is lord of the beasts only because he is more intelligent. These will have the intellect of man himself behind them. Had I directed that poor brute in June, there would have been no trail of its blood to set folks gaping. Have you seen the bungalow today? It is rather fortunate that you weren't in it last night, for after considerable thought I have decided to use you in a much better way than by killing you. I had seen a danger in that eternal curiosity of yours, and thought it best to get rid of you quickly, and in your own house rather than here. But having you alive in my very hands, there is another temptation which I find quite irresistible. But if you had been in the bungalow, wasn't the wreckage there pretty thorough? My newer servants are very strong and easily directed. Do you wonder that I call myself the Lord of Fear and say that I will some day rule the world? You have ruled the inside of a condemned cell, said Cullen coldly. You have done nothing that I can perceive but make a warlock of yourself, and at that no self-respecting man would be afraid of you. You're not the first to trade your soul to the old boy for promise of the world and all, but of them that ever did it you do look the most foolish. Take my advice, little man. Smash the black one there before it's too late, clean out your swamp with a shotgun, and start fresh. Free my arms, and I'll find strength to help you to the doing of it. Is it a bargain?" The self-styled Lord of Fear glared pure exasperation. "'You will help me,' he snarled but not in that way. Do you see my hand?" He thrust it under Cullen's nose. I see an uncommonly ugly glove, from one of your pet's paws by the talons of it. Glove! The man pushed up his cuff to disclose the wrist. Look closer, fool! An accident did that to me, a moment's carelessness when I was attempting my first recreation. Do you remember those white hounds you fought in the pass? I'll never forget the minute when I first discovered their origin. You'll help me, I say, and that great lumbering body of yours will be put to good use at last. I'll dissolve your living flesh and remould it to such a shape as will frighten even your brothers of the swamp. And after that you'll kill and destroy at my bidding. Yes, 
though I sent you against a friend, or those of your own flesh and blood, you'll hate and rend and kill and die, ravening at last in some midnight battle fought for my sake and glory." "'No,' said Cullen. Had that beast hand closed on his heart he could have hardly been more sickeningly shocked. Somehow the final inference of all Kennedy's wild talk and vague threats had not come home to him until this moment. They had been talking of the transmutation of beasts into other beasts, of the lower order of creatures, for which even the kindest-hearted of men feels a sympathy rather patronizing. Cullen had thought to be killed, fed to the monsters of the swamp, perhaps, a fate bad enough. But this! And yet Cullen's voice, though still hoarse, sounded very sane and cool. "'No, you can't do that with me, Mr. Kennedy.' "'Why not, pray?' One of the rabbits that went to making those stalking terrors yonder could be no more in my power than you are." "'No,' said Cullen again. "'A rabbit, maybe. Yourself, I don't doubt. It would take little at best to bring the beast out of you, Mr. Kennedy. But a real man, no.' "'You flatter yourself. Again, why not?' "'It won't be allowed, that's all. If you were really the clever devil you think you are, you'd know that. Ask Nakaki Otto there. By the eye of him he's had a wider experience than yourself, and he knows why not." Before Kennedy could reply there came a slow, shuffling sound from somewhere outside the cellar. It stopped and that one door in the wall was pushed open. Something, it was hard to see what, bulked palely in the dark beyond. Then it came on slowly, shufflingly. It came into the light and across the floor and it laid the burden it had half-dragged, half-earned hither in the space between Kennedy and his prisoner. Of all the horrors that Cullen had met since entering the gates at dusk, only one had really shaken him to the soul. Not the real gatekeeper coiled around his chest had been so bad as that first moment when he thought the drooped oval of its head was Marco's face. And just so, not the sight of goblins, nor the black, brooding genius of goblins, nor even the beast-paw that Kennedy bore for a hand. Not one of these things had moved him as did the sight of Marco's body, dragged in and laid gravely at his feet by Genghis Khan. If Khan were not a real ape, he had all the appearance of one. He had the short, bowed legs of a simian, the thin arms, the tremendous chest and almost neckless head. But above all he had the infinite simian sadness in his face. No human accuser could have equaled the solemnity of Khan's manner in that act, which he performed as one who does the last sad duty by a departed friend. Then, with startling abruptness, he turned a back somersault, landed on Nakakiotl's sacred dais, and crouched there, chattering and nursing the broken arm he had probably forgotten when he attempted that acrobatic feat. The grotesquery of it was the final straw for Cullen. Marco had lain heavy enough on his conscience. Having learned the full history, and become cognizant of the monstrous crimes toward which Kennedy's work, made possible by Marco, was directed, Cullen might reasonably have felt the burden lighter. But so far this view had not struck him. For twenty-four hours he had agonized in spirit over the killing of this weakling, and those hours had left their mark. To be presented with his victim's corpse by a white monkey-thing that turned somersaults afterward was the strain too much. 
what strength had been left him fell away like a dropping tide. Dimly he heard a voice say, Marco, and dead. Well, by George, I thought he and the girl had run off together. I wonder what's become of her then. But Kennedy's further speculations went unheard, for his prisoner had fainted. End of chapter 25「Chapter Twenty Six of Citadel of Fear by Gertrude Barrows Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Citadel of Fear, Chapter Twenty Six To Undine. Far toward the heart of the city, a car sped silently over the asphalt, with a greatly perturbed young man at the wheel. The car was Cleona's, and this late expedition was Cleona's, and Cleona herself was in it. By the time she and Sven Bjornsson had finished, comparing notes and jumping at the maddest conclusions Rhodes had ever heard spoken in sober earnest, that young man was in a semi-dazed condition. He scarcely retained spirit to protest when Cleona commanded him to run out her car, to place in it his shotgun and what other firearms were in the house, and prepare instantly for a sortie in force against the house of a man he had never heard of twenty-four hours earlier. His suggestion of police was met with a scorn to take his breath away. But here, having learned that a man high in the city detective force was already working on the case, Bjornsson seconded Rhodes' demand that the law be called into alliance. "'No need to explain fully,' he asserted. "'Keep the story within their comprehension. The bungalow affair is a lever to move them which I should have lacked, working alone. Begin by telephoning this McClellan that O'Hara had reason to suspect the owner of the Undine place of keeping dangerous wild beasts in an insecure manner, and went there this afternoon or evening alone. Tell him that O'Hara was not returned here, though he agreed to do so, and that a man—myself, of course—has brought you information about Kennedy, alias Reed, which proves him a very dangerous criminal. Tell him that you and I will run downtown and join him, that I will then make known to him facts that justify Kennedy's instant arrest, and that for good reasons he had best have a detail of several men ready to go out there with us. I believe the charge that Kennedy kidnapped my daughter is serious enough. We shan't need to venture on the more, er, improbable part. What we shall certainly find in his house will speak for itself, I think. There might be delay in swearing out a warrant on the kidnapping charge, so in phoning be sure and emphasize the fact we believe O'Hara's life to be in serious peril." Somewhat reluctantly Rhodes undertook the task set for him. His disbelief in Bjornsson's story as a whole was not voluntary. He couldn't believe it. But on the other hand, that story, in combination with Cullen's strange experience with the giant ape, had brought him to a kind of incredulous uneasiness of mind about it all, and to have the place investigated by lawful authorities would cut the knot of doubt in a very satisfactory manner. He called the detective bureau at City Hall, and by luck, caught McClellan just as the latter was about to lay off and go home early. The life of a city detective being both strenuous and irregular, he accomplished this feat about one day in thirty, and, being human as well as stolid, he sometimes got very tired. 
He was tired tonight. Rhodes, of course, could not know this. Neither could he know that, in the light of their last parting, sympathetic concern for Cullen O'Hara's life or limb had no share in McClellan's feeling for him. But Rhodes did know that the ensuing conversation was so highly unsatisfactory that he suddenly hung up the receiver very forcibly and turned a flushed, indignant face to the other two. He says that Cullen told him to drop the bungalow case, and when he reported, his chief took him off the assignment. He says that if you will come down and make your complaint in person, Mr. Bjornson, the matter of Reed will be investigated, but they cannot make a night raid on a respectable householder unless the person demanding it presents convincing proof and good credentials of his own. He seems to ignore the fact that I myself am a respectable householder. He said he was extremely insolent, snapped the young lawyer, breaking off into sheer indignation. He deserved to be reported to his chief. I think I'll do that little thing, too. He reached again for the receiver, but Cleona caught his hand and fairly dragged him away from the telephone. Tony, my cullen has gone to Undine, and you waste time arguing with the police? I know he's gone there. Didn't Mr. Bjornson see him in Carpentier and see him put the car to the Undine Road at a speed to frighten one? I've known it all evening. He's gone there in search of her, and for what he said, tis sure as the world that she's travelled the same way in search of him. And it's there we'll find both of them, so be they've not been murdered before this. And so, almost before he knew it, Rhodes found himself, his wife, and a stranger in the car, bound, apparently, on the armed invasion of another utter stranger's residence. "'Hurry!' came her voice in his ear. "'We're making enough speed to cost me a fortune in fines, if every policeman we've passed has taken our number. "'What's that in life or death? Mr. Bjornson, have you a plan for us when we reach there?' "'No,' he said simply. "'If what I know might be is true, then our going alone in this manner is mere suicide.' And yet, that detective's attitude was rather indicative. We've no hours to waste. How could we convince the police in time? Or where else could we raise a force of men tonight? End of chapter 26。Chapter 27 of Citadel of Fear by Gertrude Barrows Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Citadel of Fear, Chapter 27 Strange Victim, Stranger Conqueror. Though invisible from the road, in the gate lodge its keeper still pulsed with a faint, excited glowing. The flat length lay in a loose coil, the head with its speck like eyes at rest on the threshold of the lodge. Suddenly the head lifted. With a swaying motion it rose upward some five feet, to droop and poise, a luminous oval, as when Cullen had first seen it to his sorrow. By some sense, whether of hearing or vibration, it had become aware that the gate was softly opening, that someone had entered and was advancing along the drive. Into the keeper's range of vision, if it had vision and were not guided by some other unknown sense, there flitted a dark figure. The obscuring mists of earlier evening had been blown away by the gusty night wind. Had the figure turned, it would have seen clearer than had Cullen that floating, menacing oval in the lodge. But it did not turn, 
and when the keeper shot out in pursuit the rustle of straightening coils was lost in the swish and clash of wind-torn bare branches. Unwarned, the dark figure hurried on up the drive, and like a writhing white flame the keeper followed. In a moment it was almost upon the heels of its second quarry. There came one of those freakish gusts, like the breath of an invisible giant. It crashed through the branches and swept the black cloak out like a sail. Something came whistling down through the air with the speed of a flung spear. The keeper's intended quarry hurried on, but the keeper itself no longer followed. Writhing, lashing, a fury of pulsing fire, it whipped its length again and again about the enemy that had pinned it to the path. But the enemy was only an old dry branch, broken off by the wind and hurled endwise. Let the impaled creature fight as it would, a dry branch is to be neither terrorized nor slain. In a frantic tangle of flashing coils and snapping splintering twigs the gatekeeper remained wholly engaged with its conqueror. End of chapter 27「Citadel of Fear」by Gertrude Barrows Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Citadel of Fear, Chapter 28 Rival Claimants Colin O'Hara had a vision. He thought that again he lay stretched on the workroom floor. Though his eyes were closed, he thought that the lids grew transparent and by this phenomenon a great clarity of sight came upon him, so that all about him was thrice clear, and without stirring a muscle he could see every part of his surroundings. He and Marco lay side by side, very stiff and straight. This seemed just, though unpleasant. When Kennedy came with Genghis Khan to roll and drag him away, had he been able to speak he would have protested. They had no sense of what was fitting or perhaps they were ignorant of who had slain the poor weakling. With his one good arm Khan was trying to lift him now. They had dragged him to the golden font, and he noted, with no particular interest, that the stained apron no longer draped the third cougar's head. Then he perceived that Kennedy was wearing it, and was also trying to fit a glove, yellow and shining a soft flexible gold, over his right hand but the taloned white paw that had been his left retained no skill. At last he motioned the great ape to aid him, and Khan did. The ape's hand was clever enough, for all the fur on the back of it. Did that prove the created beast its creator's superior? Cullen pondered this deeply, but ere he could reach a satisfactory conclusion they were at him again. Kennedy began untying the knots of his bonds, but left off suddenly. No muttered he. To be on the safe side I shall have to anesthetize before stripping him. The feint may be only a sham. Let him stay tied for a while." This amused Cullen, who knew himself to be dead. How cautious the little man was! Now Khan was lifting at him once more. This time the master helped, and though his strength was comparatively feeble the two of them managed to raise Cullen to the font's level. Tumbled over the edge, he subsided into the font and lay there uncomfortably. The thing wasn't long enough. His neck was doubled at a painful angle. Marco's body now would have fitted much better. If they must have a corpse to the font, 
why couldn't they have chosen Marcos? Then, for though his face was below the basin's edge, he could see as well as ever what went on, he perceived that Kennedy was taking some jars, some boxes, and a small flask from the depths of those golden vessels by the wall. He came presently and set them out on a kind of shelf that extended from the font. The flask he took in his hand, and it was a thing of gold and great value, and carved all over with writhing, lizard-like forms. The stopper of it, which was glass or crystal, fitted tightly, and Kennedy had some trouble in removing it. But it came out at last. He sniffed, as if testing the freshness of the stuff it contained, smiled in unpleasant satisfaction, replaced the stopper, and set it down again. Then he stooped, and from the floor behind the font lifted a more commonplace receptacle, a large glass bottle, half filled with some kind of colorless fluid. After that there were two or three things done, but exactly what they were Cullen was not sure, because the strange sight that had come on him blurred for a time and was all confused, shadowy, and not to be remembered. Something was put over his face, he thought, and after a time taken away again. A sickish sweet odor oppressed him, hands fumbled about his body, and somewhere, very far away, a bell rang constantly. Then, clearer if possible than before, the sight returned. There was Kennedy still, but he had done with the bottle, and now he was for opening one of the small olden jars. As he did it, he looked at Cullen, and behind his beard the thin red lips grew to a smile that was ugly as a toad's without its honesty. Suddenly, with no moment's interim of thought or doubt, Cullen knew the meaning and the end of these preparations. And he knew that he was not dead, but only helpless, and that the slit-like, watchful eyes behind those round glasses were no longer Kennedy's, but the eyes of Nakaki Otto, maker of goblins. With that, he who had been Archer Kennedy faded to nothing, and in his place stood the naked evil that had squatted on the dais. Smiling, it leaned to pass treacherous, caressing fingers across the victim's face. Cullen's spirit shivered, but all that was great in him rose to fierce rebellion. Never, never! What claim had that dark vileness upon him? But he could not even speak to protest, for his body slept. Then somewhere a low, clear voice was sounding. "'Wait,' it said softly. Otto, you who were once my brother, wait! Lest you break the law that must not be broken and destroy yourself with the world!' Cullen had thought the voice that of his dusk lady, but surely the demon had never been a brother of hers. His attention, which had been fixed on what hung over him, widened. The speaker, he discovered, was a tall youth, very slender, who stood before the font facing Nakakiotl across Cullen's body. In one hand he grasped a staff, its serpent head curving out of a circlet of quail feathers. Of the speckled quail feathers was his cloak, and the round shield he bore on his left arm was rimmed with them. His face was very bright and beautiful, a kindly face too, with patient, smiling lips but in the eyes a spirit lurked that made less incongruous the gaping, intolerant jaws of the serpent crest above it. And every plume about him flickered, wavering, as if in some draught that blew on him alone, for the air in the place was still. 
Looking beyond him, Cullen perceived that the floored space beneath the shaft had filled with thronging people. Very strange folk they were, and at the same time extraordinarily familiar. Like old friends in masqueraders' robes he knew each one, and recalled the names of them in different lands. There was him whose flowing robes were woven of the beaded gray rain. White foam was his beard, and his eyes were like blue ice-caverns. Tlaloc was he, Neptune, and Mananan, son of that great one who dwells forever invisible in the sleeve Fuad. But his robes were not all gray. At one side they were struck through to rainbow hues by another who stood behind him. That was Luch, the Shining One, Tonathiu, the Fiery One, Amen-Ra of the Egyptians, Apollo of the Greeks. Mestli, with his paler fire, was there. Santiotl, who is Ceres and also Dana, mother of gods. Tlapatlazanan, with their flasks of healing. And Tezatzankatl, merry of face and wreathed like Bacchus. They and many others of friendly appearance stood behind their spokesman. But a demon leered across Cullen's body, and the mouth of him was wide and cruel. Shall I wait? said Nakhakiotl. Yes, for the man is mine. But yesterday he was claimed for me in Telepolan. But yesterday he was claimed for me also, and. But yesterday Telepolan fell. Did you save your servants? Telepolan's time was ended, and I might not save them. But death is little. I have fought for you for this man's life because I love him, but slay him now if you will for my children do not fear death. Slay him and spare this other deed which is forbidden." "'Did you forbid it when my white hounds roamed the hills?' "'Your hounds served a sacred use, to guard Telepolan. Moreover, in their making only your power, not your spirit, went into them. Their violence was the clean violence that fights, but not for malice. For the sake of their origin those hounds stood equal with the mighty guardians. But the hounds you send forth today are fouler than foul. Evil is their service, and their nature an infinite degradation. They are as I wish them. Then degrade beasts only, or such beasts as are human only in form. Claim service of your own, black one, but this is my child. I have followed him through many lands, and I know him well. His spirit has flamed to the courage of my breath. I have sung to him on the plains, and lulled him to sleep in the forests. He is one of my clean-hearted children, and you may not corrupt him." "'He has traversed my waters,' muttered a new voice, deep and thunderous as distant breakers. "'In our play we hurled great billows, the lord of the air and I. We hurled them against him, and he was not afraid. "'I have set my burning mark upon him,' Tanathiu spoke, a hissing whisper. "'I have tested him well, and the fire of my own spirit was not more steadfast than his.' "'Beware of us, O mine enemy!' The feathered one's countenance grew bright and fierce even as the glory of Tanathiu wildly waved his turbulent plumes, and raising his serpent-staff he shook it like a spear. "'Beware of us, for our patience is nearly ended. Tlapalan fell, but its time was finished. Think not that we will stand idle forever while you destroy our children. 
The Lord of the Air guards his own. There is a house on a hill, sneered the demon, that you did not guard. You know otherwise. Not against me did you send your emissaries, but against this man, who had been claimed for me, and against his loved one, knowing that your own claim on him was false. Not so false now as then, murmured Nakakiotl. I say, continued the other sternly, knowing that you might not corrupt him, you sought the lesser satisfaction of killing. Not against me were your emissaries sent, but was it not my staff, my little broken staff, that sent back the first crawling up a blood-stained stream? Was it not my shield, my little broken shield, that kept the second, the glimmering worm, at bay till my child should awaken? For the third no ward of mine was needed. But the fourth, was it not my great voice roaring in the trees that called my child away from a force too strong for him? There is no question, retorted Nakakiotl, and there was a sneer in his tone that was very like Kennedy's. There could be no question that before you were lord of the air you were a man. So do men boast of their most trifling deeds. The end of it all is, your child, or this that was your child, lies here. What protection do you offer him now, most powerful one?" There came a pause and a silence. The other gods stirred restlessly, as in anger, but Quetzalcoatl's face grew patient again, and when he spoke it was in a voice of pleading, gentle as the wind of spring. "'He is not yours. O Nakakiotl, once you were called Telpukli, the young, and Tezcatlipoca, shining mirror. You rewarded the just, and for the wrongdoer you had mercy to bestow. Remember your youth, Telpukli, and be merciful." But the evil god only grinned wider. Men made me what I am, and for that I hate them. And in all Anahuac there was no mercy among them. In the shrieks of the bloody sacrifice, in the cries of babes murdered upon my altars, in the steam that arose from the unspeakable feast, the mirror of Tezcatlipoca was fouled and dimmed, till Pukli grew black, old, and cruel. I am Nekok Yaotl, creator of hatreds, and why should I alone of the gods walk unrecognized? To Tlaloc are the rains, floods, clouds, and the billows. All these are his visible servants. Tonathiu is seen of all, and you, lord of the air, you are heard in the forests. In the day of your anger men know you and bow down in fear. But I, who am stronger than any, must work in secret. My own bond-servants deny me. Many centuries I sat patient in Talapalan, working in secret, restricted by the very priests that served me till there came to our hills a man who was mine from birth. Even he, being man, I must delude, lest in full knowledge of its service the weak vessel be shattered. The fortress of fear he has named this, but it has a truer and more secret name, the birthplace of corruption. Yet he has been an apt tool. Look about you in this, the seat he prepared for me unknowing. Free runs my will today, and freer shall it run tomorrow. Hate breeds hate, and demon produces demon. 
How fast have their numbers increased! He is pleased like a child, and believes that he shall rule the world. He! That empty, hollow reed through which my will runs! But through all, and despite his coward soul, I have brought this blind slave of mine to dare that for which I waited through the centuries. We have come at last to the utter corruption of man. Here lies the first who shall wear my outer livery, because he has worn it once in his heart, but he is not the last. You have said that in the deed about to be performed I break an immutable law, and I know the law you mean. It is the right of the soul, which may not be utterly damned without its own consent. We will test that law. Here, in the person of one man, lies the fate of all mankind, whom I hate. If I succeed, as I shall succeed, then a barrier goes down which has long withheld me from my own. No longer shall I need my blind and foolish tool, who has thought to use my power to further his small and futile ambitions. From that hour I am free indeed. He whose heart I may stamp but once with my seal, I shall claim for my own. All, all, body and spirit together, as I claim this man. He has slain at my bidding, your perfect one. Protect him if you can. And when you fail, as you must, for you are weak cowards all, who fear to overstep boundaries and lose your godhead, when you fail, think well on this. In the day of the full corruption, and when each hater shall wear the foul outer form of his hatred, who, think you, will be best worshipped of the gods? There was silence. Then the dull, distant breakers roared again. I am Tlaloc. I bear the ships of man. My rains water his fields. Shall I serve a race of demons? It may not be. Tanathiu went ruddy, as if he peered through storm mists. Shall I behold only devils as the world turns under me? It may not be. It may not be. The cry was echoed by the lesser gods, till one voice sang clear above the rest, the wind's voice, chanting forever round the world. It shall not be. Beware of me, O mine enemy. I am the lord of the air, without whom no thing lives. Fire, the pure, is my playfellow, and the whelming flood my friend. But ere ever I was a god, I was a man. Man is my brother." better than all I love him. I am the song of his heart and the strength of his spirit. Courage am I, and hope, and the breath of the wild, sweet places. It is you who have flung down the challenge. It is I who take it up. Beware of me, O mine enemy, for the day of my patience is ended." The singing checked abruptly, and the god's face, bright and fierce even as Tanathiu's, darkened, grew dimmer. About him and all of them the mist closed in, obscuring the clearness of Cullen's vision. Like a premonition of evil, the dark mist closed and thickened. When the feathered one spoke again, it was in a mere whisper. Cullen could not be sure if he heard with his ears, or if the whisper and faint answering voice were equally in the bounds of his own brain. "'Claim your own, Nakakyotl, but not this man. It is forbidden.' You cannot do it. Why not, pray? 
one of the rabbits that went to make the stalking terrors behind you could have been no more in my power than he is. No, retorted that dim voice. A rabbit, perhaps. Yourself, by all means. But a real man, no. You flatter him. Again, why not? It won't be allowed, that's all. Were you really the clever devil you think you are, you'd know it. The conversation had taken on a reminiscent tang that puzzled Colin, and at the same time deeply depressed him. He had an idea, too, that just here someone should come in, and—yes, there lurched Genghis Khan down a lane open for him between the now barely visible ranks of the gods. Again he was dragging that unlucky and persistent corpse. Having laid it solemnly before the font, he somersaulted off like a black catherine wheel to vanish in the mist. Marco, and dead, said Nekakiotl. At the words, a soft, murmurous sound swept the mist, ice mined morning through a forest. Dead, continued the demon, by the angry hand of my servant. By the just hand of mine, murmured Cullen's defender. No, for he knew no reason to kill. I rose up in his heart suddenly, and lo, he obeyed me. Obedience is the test. Why should I not give my servant what form I choose?" Again there was silence. Cullen began to think that to the last question no answer would be vouchsafed, and his depression increased. He would have liked to hear it answered, answered in some definite, satisfactory way that would have convinced himself as well as the demon. But now the vapors had swallowed all the friendly gods save the lord of the air, and his face changed yet more, changed and humanized, till suddenly Cullen knew it for the face of Maxatla, that young captain preferred by the moth-girl on Talapalan Lake. Striding forward, he laid a hand on Cullen's shoulder. "'I claim this man,' he cried in a stern, sweet voice that was unmistakably human. I claim him in the name of the feathered serpent. Let any servant of Nakakiato lay hand on him at his peril." And Nakakiato answered, "'You little fool! Unless you wish to lie in his place, go away! I am tired of having my work broken in on by a silly, superstitious girl. Now, for God's sake, if you know what's good for you, Clear out of here and stay out. End of chapter twenty eight. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the Fileo fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.